your Bibles out. Now, I have the right sermon now. <laughs> I totally put last week's or two weeks ago that sermon on my iPad, and that's not where we're at. So if you want to get your Bibles out, I would highly encourage you to do that. Uh, we are going to be looking at Mark chapter 14. Um, super thankful for Josh last week for... Are you seriously on the phone right now? <laughs> Call her later, okay? Doggone it. All right. So we are in Mark chapter 14. Uh, I'm really thankful for Josh last week for covering um, preaching because I'm um, Hayden. Our middle daughter had her tonsils taken out and she's recovering well and she's actually in class tonight. So that's really exciting. Um, she lost her voice, which a, th a really loud three-year-old losing their voice is like so peaceful. It was one of the quietest like two days in our house in a pretty long time. Her breath smells really bad because there's literally like, you know, flesh that's healing in her throat. So that's disgusting. You like that. <laughs> You're like, um, so we're going to look at Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 12, 12 through 26. So if you don't have a paper Bible and you want to use the YouVersion Bible app, you can get your phone out and go to, uh, if you haven't downloaded it yet, you can go to the App Store and uh, type in YouVersion or type in Bible and download it. And then if you open the app, the bottom right-hand corner of your home screen, there is a more kind of tab. If you tap that icon, you will um, then go to events. You will find all of our sermon notes on version every single week. And the reason that that's important is because if you save the event, you can access these notes more than just tonight. And so you can go through each section, write down the things that stand out to you. Maybe write down some questions that you have as we're walking through the text. We'll talk about your question later, okay? Um, and uh, we, you, can, you can mark questions down that you have about the text. The other great thing is, is we try to link a few different resources at the end of it. And so um, on version tonight, there are three resources to further explain some of the things and the themes that we're going to talk about tonight. They just go into a little bit more depth that we're unable to do in this sermon. Um, and there's some complicated things in here that I'm not really going to get into, but these articles really, really um, kind of flow out and hopefully answer some of the questions that might pop up as we are walking through this text. And so if you're not using version for anything else, I would encourage you to do it for that so that you can go um, deeper in the text that we're preaching and hopefully answer some of the questions that you might have. So we've been studying over the past few sermons uh, what is commonly referred to as Holy Week or Passion Week. And it's the events in our text um, in Mark 11 through Mark chapter 11 through chapter 15. And so I'm going to briefly run through this timeline uh, of where we kind of are in Holy Week. Sunday was Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Monday, Jesus clears the temple of its cor corruption. Tuesday, Jesus's authority is questioned by the religious leaders. Uh, Wednesday, the religious and political leaders uh, ask him questions about taxes, marriage, and the commandments. Wednesday evening, this was the this is where we talked two weeks ago. Uh, was Jesus was anointed in Bethany, and Thursday, which is the text that we're going to be talking about tonight. This is the Last Supper, and Jesus is betrayed and arrested. And then Friday, in this timeline of Holy Week, is Jesus before Pilate. He's beaten, crucified, and buried. So the text that we'll be studying tonight is often referred to 
and, and um, noted as the Last Supper. You've probably seen a photo like this. Have you guys ever seen this? Um, this is kind of an enhanced rendition of what, <clears throat> I don't know what's going on here. I don't know why it looks like they're arguing and why they're deformed, but it's fine. Um, I saw a meme once that was like, why does it look like um, Jesus just asked them to pay for the tab or something like that? And they're just like arguing of who's going to pay for the meal or whatever. So you've probably seen this picture. Um, if your grandma is a Christian, she might have had one of these pictures in her home. Uh, my grandma did, and my grandma really wasn't a Christian, but she had this picture in her house. So shout out to her. And uh, this is kind of a depiction of what this Last Supper may have looked like. And this event is important to Christians and is essential for the Christian to understand. We'll be talking about what Passover is and why they were celebrating. This is the meal that they are eating right now is the Passover feast. Um, what the significance is of Jesus saying that the cup and the bread were symbols of his body and blood that would be sacrificed. And after the sermon, at the conclusion of it, we are going to be participating in communion together. If you've um, attended Bethel Youth over the last few months, you may have taken communion with us. Or if you attend on Sunday mornings, we consistently take communion on Sunday mornings. And so we're going to be talking about what is communion? Why is it important? Why do we do it as Christians? And why do we do that as a church? And so with that being said, we are going to read our text in its entirety. And so if you wouldn't mind, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read Luke or Mark chapter 14? verses 12 through 26. Hey, Zach, do you want to read it? Sweet. Do you have the NIV? Cool. Verse, uh, Mark 14, verses 12 through 26. All right, everybody give Zach a hand as he comes up here. I'm totally, I'm totally putting you on the spot, but okay. Okay, 12 through 26. 12 through 26. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asks, where's my guest room and where, I'm, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. One sec. Okay. I had to open it up. There we go. Uh, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be, it would be better for him if he had never been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He said to them, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until 
that day when I drink it in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Awesome. You may be seated. Thanks, Zach. So what we're going to do is we're going to break this uh, text up into two chunks. So we're going to talk through verses 12 through 16 first. And this, this section was kind of in the beginning. This is where Jesus instructs his disciples to go to the city, which is Jerusalem, to find a specific man and ask him to prepare a room for them. Uh, the two of his disciples go to make those arrangements. And so you might be wondering, who are those two, two disciples? If you read the account in Luke chapter 22, verse 8 says that it was Peter and John. So the disciples, Peter and John, they go into the city of Jerusalem and they go to find this guy who has a jug of water. And we might ask ourselves, like, why is this an important detail? Um, this, this could have been simply an identifier because it was actually Jewish custom that women carried the water jars. And so this meant that this man would have been really easy for them to spot. You go to Jerusalem, see this man who is carrying jars of water. You're like, ah, you're the jar water guy. I need to talk to you. It's also possible that Jesus may have already made arrangements with this man as because our text said that the room was already arranged and it was furnished and it was ready to go. Although if this man had an extra room, Jewish custom required people to give that room to a Jew who was traveling from out of town to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And uh, these really aren't the main parts of our text, but I think they're good things to know. So, but here's the big question of this, of this text that we read. So what is Passover? What is Passover? Why was it such a big deal to the Jewish people? So Passover, I'm going to give you just kind of a brief definition of what Passover is. It's a feast that celebrates the Lord's deliverance of the, of the people of Israel while they were enslaved in Egypt. Exodus chapter 6 verse 6 is where God promises to redeem and deliver the people from the hand of Pharaoh. And at this point in Exodus chapter 6 when God is saying this to Moses, at this point the Egyptians had enslaved the people of Israel for about 400 years. So God says that he's going to redeem and deliver them from that slavery. And as you imagine, if you are the king of a nation and you've had free slave labor for 400 years, you're not going to let them go, right? There has been generations and generations of these slaves. And they're not just going to let them go because some random guy comes in and says, hey, let my people go. There would have to be a very compelling reason for this king to let these people go. God knew this would be the case and even said in Exodus chapter 3, verse 19, the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. Then the next verse, verse 20, God promises a man named Moses that God will strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. These wonders would be for two reasons. To show the Israelites that the God of their fathers was alive and worthy of their worship and to show the Egyptians that their gods were nothing. So at this point, even the, the Jewish people were very loosely following God. They had adopted the worship of the Egyptian gods. But even then, God said that he was going to deliver them. These wonders would be God sending ten plagues on the nation of Egypt. They had... Um, 
Before each plague, Pharaoh was warned by Moses to let the people go, but he refused every single time. And I would highly encourage you to, if you're using the YouVersion Bible app, scroll all the way to the bottom and you will find um, an article about the plagues in Egypt. And I would encourage you to read this article because um, it, I think it lays out so well these different plagues and how each one challenges a god of the Egyptians. And it's really fascinating. And these 10 Plagues were this, the Nile River turning to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, death of the livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and the final plague was this, the death of the firstborn males. Like I said, please read this article that explains these different plagues. I think it will bring a lot of clarity and begin to answer why God would do this to a nation. And while studying this text, I read something else that was really interesting. The first nine plagues didn't require anything of the Jewish people to be saved from them. They were saved simply because they were God's people. But the tenth plague differed. The tenth plague required the people to have faith. So how so? How were they to have faith? God commanded each family each family of Israel to find an unblemished lamb and to kill it. And the blood of that lamb would then be smeared over the doorposts and the family would then roast the meat and eat the meat that night. When the angel of death came over the nation, it passed over the family's homes that sacrificed the lamb and had its blood over the doorposts. And this was the first Passover that was celebrated. The angel of death passed over each of these Homes. The families who did not put the blood over the doorpost, their firstborn sons died. So we need to address something. So if the firstborn Egyptian sons could, like, could they have been saved from this? Because the Israelites, the one who put the blood over their doorposts, their firstborn sons were, were saved. Was that option available for the Israelites as well? So if we look to Exodus chapter 9, verses 18 through 21, it seems as if they could have been saved. Let's read it. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I, which was God, will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter, because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Here's, 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 where, here's the key right here, verse 20. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. So to me, reading Exodus 9, it seems as if they knew about and if they had an opportunity to bring their slaves and their livestock into their homes, they would also have an opportunity to cover the doorposts with the blood of a worthy sacrifice. But for whatever reason, that didn't happen. After the 10th plague, Pharaoh demands that the people of Israel leave the nation. Exodus 12 through 14 tells the story of the exodus of the Hebrew people out of Egypt and how Pharaoh actually changed his mind. He's like, I want them back. I actually want them back in the nation. I don't care if their God just did all of these things to our nation. I want them back. And he sends an army after them. The people of Israel came to the Red Sea. They were trapped between a massive body of water and an army approaching them. I want you, Aubrey, to throw this picture up. So you see this kind of red line. This, this is um, a, 
approximate of where they believe the Israelites um, went out of Egypt. So this red line goes all the way down and then you'll see it into the Red Sea right there. So they are up against the banks of the sea and in the, in the, in the mountains they see the Egyptians coming towards them. And crazy enough, God makes the sea part and the nation walks through on dry land. It's about a 10 mile stretch right there. This is also a nation of a few million people. So it's not like a thousand people walking across the 10 mile stretch. This is literally millions of people crossing on dry land. When the Israelites had crossed to the other side, the Egyptians had also started to cross the sea and God commanded the waters to come back together, which swept away the entire Egyptian army that was there. And when I read stuff like this, and I don't know if you ask this same question, but this is the question I ask. How could God do something like this? Like, how could God do this to this entire nation, just causing chaos and wreaking havoc on this nation and killing the firstborn who doesn't put the blood over the doorposts and wiping the army away? How could God do this? And it's easy for us to have the mindset that God was enjoying this. It's easy for us to have a mindset that God was enjoying the destruction of the people of Israel's enemies. And I think we operate this way because I think a lot of times we're trained to kind of celebrate the downfall of evil people. Think about it. We celebrate when the, ga- when the bad guys get killed in movies. When the bully gets humiliated, we laugh and we celebrate, whether it's on a movie or in real life. Uh, in war, we celebrate the destruction of the enemy. And, um, and the thing is, is I'm not saying that justice for wrong is bad. I'm not saying that justice for wrong is terrible, but we have to also think of the person that justice is being given to. We have to remember that they are made in the image of God, that they are a person that is broken with sin. And Jesus said to, in Matthew chapter 5, love your enemy and bless those that persecute you. So this tells us that God cares for the person who's even bullying this person. God cares about the person that is an enemy of another person. Now, he doesn't condone what they're doing, but he loves them because they're a person. Psalm chapter 5, verse 4 says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. The God who is loved delights in what is true and just. In other words, God does not ignore our sin just because he loves us. In fact, because of his great love that he provided the means of cleansing our sin in Christ. Exodus chapter 34 verses 6 through 7, it speaks of, of how God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, but also God brings justice. God allowed 400 years to pass before bringing justice upon the Egyptians. There were opportunities for the Egyptians to turn their worship to the God of the Hebrews, but the majority chose not to do so. We saw in Exodus 9 that some of the Egyptians did fear the word of the Lord and move their livestock and their enslaved people inside and they were spared from one of the plagues. So that tells me that maybe they did worship, some of them worship the God of the Hebrews. So now that we have a context and a background for what Passover is and why the Jewish people celebrated it, let's move to Mark chapter 14, 
verses 17 through 26. And so, and what my hope is, is that we can begin to understand how Jesus is the new spotless lamb that will be sacrificed, that will save us from death. Verse 17 through 21. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The main thing I want to highlight in this chunk of our text is verses 22 through 26. This is where Jesus insinuates or institutes a new way of remembering God's faithfulness and remembering what Jesus would do on the cross in just a few hours. Verse 24 speaks of a covenant being made with Jesus' blood poured out for many. This same event recorded in Luke chapter 22 says this covenant is a new covenant. If something is new, there has to be an old. That means we need to look at what is the old covenant. So the old covenant was a commitment between God and the people of Israel that was maintained by following a strict list of rules and rituals. Part of these rules and rituals was sacrificing a perfect and spotless lamb to pay for their sins against God. Romans chapter 6 tells us the wages of sin is death. Therefore, that's why there had to be a lamb, a perfect lamb that was sacrificed so it could cover and pay the price of what sin does. For thousands of years, they adhered to the Mosaic law to find their right standing with God. The Bible uses a word called righteousness to describe their right standing with God. And this included sacrificing animals to cover their sin. So when the Passover meal was celebrated each year, they would remember God's faithfulness in Egypt. But they would also look forward in in anticipation of the coming Messiah, which Jesus was that coming Messiah. So what is the new covenant? Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Son of God, and was replacing the animal sacrifice for sin. Now, instead of your right standing with God coming from your heritage or your duties, it was from a place of faith in Him. The new covenant is the promise that God makes with humanity that He will forgive sin and restore fellowship with those whose hearts are turned towards him. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant and his death on the cross is the basis of the promise. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, the apostle Paul says this, he says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and it's not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. 
So after we hear all of this, and after we maybe begin to understand that Jesus is the new covenant, Jesus is the new spotless lamb who sacrificed his life, his perfect life, and his death was the one who covered our sins once and for all. What is our responsibility in receiving what Jesus has done? One commentator said this, he said, our responsibility is to exercise faith in Christ, the one who fulfilled the law on our behalf and brought an end to the law's sacrifices through his sacrificial death. So communion is how we demonstrate our thankfulness for what Jesus has done so we, so we may live in a right relationship in this life and the life to come. So I hope you have started to kind of understand what the original Passover was celebrated for, to celebrate God sparing them and, and, and releasing them from oppression in Egypt. But when Jesus came, he not only saved them from the, the, having to celebrate how they did celebrate, but he's freeing them from the death and the oppression of sin. And so this is how we're going to end our sermon tonight is by partaking in communion together to remember and demonstrate our thankfulness for what Jesus has done. So this is what we're going to do. You'll see these two little communion stations right here. What I want you to do is very quickly and quietly and in an orderly fashion, please come forward and grab a cup of communion and take it back to your seat. And then we'll have some instructions on what to do next. Maybe when you get it, shake it up just a little bit. Because this uh, can kind of be weird tasting sometimes. Pastor Taylor, I like moldy grape juice. It's happened. It's happened. You live left in the fridge a little too long. What about the styrofoam? Just melt in your mouth, man. Did it open? Do you need a new one? Okay. So the Apostle Paul, he speaks of communion in a letter that he wrote to the Corinthian church. We have this, this letter, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 through 29. And just hold, hold the communion in your hand. We'll give some instructions in just a second. He said this in relation to communion. He said, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So what does it mean to take the bread and to drink the cup in an unworthy manner, as the Apostle Paul said? I want you to, to look at this quote. It says, it may mean to disregard the true meaning of the bread and the cup and to forget the tremendous price our Savior paid for our salvation. Or it may mean to allow the ceremony to become a dead and formal ritual or to come to the Lord's Supper with unconfessed sin. In keeping with Paul's instruction, we should examine ourselves before eating the bread and drinking the cup. So what I want us to do just for like maybe 10 seconds, 20 seconds, is I want us to, to pray and to align our hearts and align our mind with God. 
And maybe for you, that alignment is part of maybe confessing sin that's in our life that needs to be confessed of. Um, if you are here tonight and you have yet to put your trust in what Jesus has done for you and you want to do that, I would, I would encourage you to do that right now. Romans 10 verse 9 instructs us to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. So putting your trust in him is believing that Jesus is the way to eternal life and recognizing that our sin disqualifies us from a right relationship with God. But when we confess our sin and surrender our life, God sees your life through what Jesus has done. So let's take about 10, 15 seconds and let's just begin to pray. You can um, just pray in your head. You don't have to pray out loud. We're going to take about 10 seconds. Maybe there's some unconfessed sin in your life that you want to confess to God. Maybe you want to give your life to Jesus for the first time. Um, whatever that is, let's just align ourselves with what God has done or what Jesus has done. Jesus, we come to you tonight. We come to you as broken people. And we just thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you for the sacrifice that has been made. The price that we were to pay, you paid it on our behalf. And Jesus, we thank you for that. We confess our sins to you. Mark chapter 14, verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread. So on the... In the little cup that you have, that top layer, if you just pull that back, you'll take, I have this little wafer. Let's take this. And while they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And while he, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, the, take it, this is my body. This is not literal body. This is a symbol of Jesus' body. Jesus, we thank you for your body that was broken on our behalf. I pray that we would remember the sacrifice that you've made. Let's take the bread together. And then let's take the, the second layer off to peel back for the juice. It is grape juice. <laughs> kind of like Kool-Aid grape juice. Verse 23. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they drank from it. God, Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was shed. We thank you for your sacrifice. It is your blood that covers our sin. It is your blood that allows us the opportunity to be in right standing with our creator, with God the Father. We thank you for your blood that was sacrificed for us. Let's drink together. I hope that what you're leaving tonight is with a better understanding of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you. The sacrifice that Jesus has made for me so that I could live a life with Jesus here on this earth, but also for eternity in heaven. And if you are here tonight and you maybe made that decision to 
follow Jesus for the first time, I would encourage you to talk to your small group leader. They would love to celebrate with you. And also, um, if you have any questions or where do, I, where do I go from here? What do I do now? They would love to talk to you about that. But what we're going to do now as, as well is uh, go into our small groups and we're going to talk through a couple questions kind of regarding the text that we just talked about. And so um, for our small groups, the guys are in the back of the room. The girls are in the front. Um, high school is on this side. Middle school is on this side. So let's go to our small groups and your small group leader will dismiss you when you're done.